short verses when we finish with him. And it's kind of funny, as I've been teaching this uh, lesson and started in on the older brother and thinking about the older brother and, you know, praying about it and studying, I was pretty excited to get rid of him, <laughs> you know, to be done. But back to the attitude, right? <laughs> There's a lesson to be learned. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy and your care. Thank you for your love, for bringing us through to this day and allowing us to see yet the sunshine, yet another day here on the earth. Well, God, we pray that you will help us to be productive in your kingdom, bringing glory and honor to your name and all that we say and do as we interact with each other and with those of the world and in your midst and your presence. Thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name. We do pray to be that will. Amen. Attitude. Why did the younger brother have to come home? Um, verse 30 of Luke chapter 15. The older brother uh, completely cold-heartedly finally just disowns his brother in every way. He's angry at his father uh, in tremendous anger. And in verse 30, he says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. Please turn to Philippians chapter 3 and uh, in verse 12. As Christians, something that we have to learn how to do, it needs to become second nature for us. And that is to feel the way God feels about a situation, about a subject matter. We should have a broken heart of the things that breaks God's heart. And one of those things that breaks God's heart is sin. And when there's sin, we should feel the way that God feels about sin and be willing uh, and ready to uh, admit our sins, confess our sins, and to forgive the sins of those who's, uh, who sin against us. But this brother, the older brother, believed obviously in his heart that the sins his brother committed were unforgivable. You know, why should he have to forgive his brother's sins? And sometimes that uh, is found in the Lord's church where people sin so badly as if one sins worse than the other. But so badly to where some of us have a hard time of letting go and forgiving the individual for the sins that they have committed. And we hold their sins against them. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, uh, in, in his walk of life, committed a, a terrific sins. Uh, and you think about it, what if the church, over all the years, never forgave him? What is it, the 17 books in the New Testament that we have written and recorded, by the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of God. It was God's will that even though Paul had committed such sins, it was God's will that Paul be used as an instrument for the Lord. Uh, and he had to learn lessons that, you know, other people didn't have to learn. And so that was Paul's mindset and that was Paul's consequence for his sins. And um, he suffered his consequences. But we have to understand that God has a mission for all of us in some Times it takes a little longer for some of us to learn God's 
message and uh, God's desire for us than it does for others. What if they held Paul accountable? Listen to what Paul says about himself. Verse 12. Now that I've already obtained it, well, I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul simply says, I have to let it go. Whether you let it go or not, church, I have to let it go. In order to do the work of God, he has to let it go. The prodigal son said, I'll be a slave, Father. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Uh, But see, at some point, he's going to have to let go of the sins that he's committed in the past and move forward to be a good servant and a good son in the eyes of his father, having completely turned his life around. And how important and how critical that is. So the older brother uh, has his own issues. And uh, we've looked at this over and over again. Pride. And pride is is probably the source of resentment. He resented his father's decision. He resented his father for making the decision. And he just refused to share in any joy. There was no joy uh, in the older son's mind or heart uh, when his brother came home. This son of yours. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18 He was suffering from the same sin that almost destroyed his brother, pride. Verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Shouldn't it be a prayer that we echo to God on a regular and a continual basis that we ask God, please keep me from pride. Keep me from pride, right? Three things are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Dear God, please keep me from pride. Keep me from myself, right? Keep me from pride. Pride is so powerful and destructive and wicked and evil, and it carries us into places that we just don't want to go. You know, we just don't want to be there. And, uh, and pride, you know, one of the things about pride that we learn that we can do to keep us from exalting ourselves or to keep us uh, ourselves from, from being in positions or situations that we know we ought not be in, avoid them, right? If you see something in, in front of you that, you know, just doesn't look right, instead of going over there and finding yourself in the middle of a situation, just avoid the entire situation. And then you won't have an opportunity for pride to jump in and you find yourself in trouble. Pride. Pride is a terrible, terrible thing. One of the three things, again, that's in the world. Lust and pride. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. I want to look at one more scripture with the older brother. And then and then let's leave the older brother and let's leave the younger brother and let's go into an interlude about God and then we'll go into the father. You know, the father doesn't have a lot of verses, uh, of things that he says. It's like a, a typical father. He's not going to say a whole lot. But what he does say has so much meat to it and so much power to it. You might want to listen. Psalm 
chapter 19, verses 12 through verse 14. Psalm chapter 19, the verses 12 through verse 14. The Bible says, Who can discern his errors? Equip me from hidden faults. Also, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in the sight of God, the, our Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Keep me back from myself. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Keep me back, God, from the things that I know I ought not do. And equip me, please, of all the evil and wickedness and sin that's been found in me. And let the words of my mouth be acceptable to you and the meditation of my heart. So as we meditate on God's word and think about God's word, I want you to look just for a moment at the picture. What is the image that is being displayed? The picture of God from this story. So now we're looking at this account from a a vertical uh, perspective. We're looking at it from heaven's vantage point, looking down on the earth as opposed to looking at it from a parallel perspective. We're looking at it from God. What does God see? And and where is the joy of God in this particular account? And let's let's look at that and and then we'll get uh, on to the Father. First, back to the actual account. Luke 15, uh, verses 1 and verse 2. And I want you to think for just a moment. Think about what it looks like from God's vantage point. We're going to look at another passage to help us to gain a good understanding of what it looks like. Okay, the Bible says, Now all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Here is God, and he has a message. The Father, the Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, standing on the earth, has something to say. And all the people, the tax gatherers, who need to be saved, and the sinners who need a Savior. They're all coming, and they want to hear what Jesus has to say. What joy! I mean, the account starts off from God's perspective with an amazing amount of joy. Look at all the people who want to hear what God has to say. The world has been corrupt and evil and wicked, and here these people come because God has something to say, and they're excited, saying, Lord, teach me what you want me to know. That's what God sees. That's what God sees. And amidst amidst this crowd, verse 2, the Pharisees are there. uh, And the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But God expects that because God speaks of that, you know, if you will, in, in a prophetic way. But these people, they can't wait to hear what thus saith the Lord. What does it look like? What What is it going on in the mind of Jesus at this point? Well, let's go back to Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10. And let's, let's take a look at what, what, what was going on. So, so Mary and Martha, there's this big uh, uh, feast, if you will, that, that Martha is preparing for. Maybe Mary helped earlier, but right now the guests have come. And, and Mary's nowhere to be found in regards to helping Martha in this feast. Verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, 
who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. And so here Jesus has something to say. God is on the earth, God with us. He has something to say and he has his audience, Mary and whomever else is there, and they can't wait to listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, Martha, you're worried about so much. And I can remove that worry if you understand there's only one thing that's important. And that one thing is the things that come out of my mouth. That's the only thing that's important in this world. And Mary has come to listen to what I have to say. So in this particular instance, you have just Mary and whomever else might be there. In Luke 15, there's a whole crowd of tax gatherers and sinners. Remember, Jesus said, this is the reason I came to save sinners. And so to see this audience of sinners coming forward to listen to Jesus, this is exciting from the perspective and the vantage point of heaven. Now, I want to look at one more thought. John, please. Chapter 4. Let's look at verse 10. From heaven's perspective, he comes to this woman who's at the well. And the woman is a sinner, right? Uh, Not that anyone else isn't, but anyway, she's a sinner. And she's talking to Jesus, and she is intrigued in the message as she's talking to him, trying to figure out what is the Lord talking about. Jesus says, uh, he gave, he gives her profound spiritual truths, and he says this, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she is just confused as ever. (laughs) Living water? Wait a minute, you don't even have anything to get the water out. The well is deep. How are you going to get the water out of there? She's stuck in the physical. And what happens is, as humans, we become so fixated, because that's we live in this world, so fixated on the, you know, worldly things that we don't really grasp the spiritual. And, and here God has this amazing message for us. And, and sometimes we're just so stuck in the physical, we don't see what God wants us to see. And in our lives today, what spiritual things happened in your life today that was earth-moving and shattering, that grew your faith and, and strengthened you and encouraged you? We don't think about that kind of stuff until something really bad happens. And then we're praying, God, please help us. And then God begins to deliver us. And then God delivers us. And then we're saying, oh, God really brought me through that. But today, thank God, there was nothing earth shattering and all that. But what spiritual message did you get from God today? This woman was talking about the physical water. And Jesus was talking about the spiritual water. The spiritual things. That's what is important. So God has an audience, and now this woman is is a little bit uh, bewildered. She's stuck in the physical, in the flesh. And Jesus throws another thing out there to her. In verse uh, 13, he says, Jesus answered and said uh, to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And eventually the message, she finally gets it, and she goes off and tells the whole city about Jesus because she got the spiritual message, right? And that's what's important, and that's critical. And Jesus says, that's the only thing that is important. And that's even today. There's only one thing that's important, and that's the message of God in our relationship with Him. When I was uh, teaching Bible classes to uh, to people who were ill, and this was just part of a mission, I would I would begin uh, talking to them, and I would begin by saying, you know, first speaking to their illness and being sympathetic uh, or empathetic in that in that moment, uh, and and then I would say to them. Uh, in a moment, uh, you're about to go and receive physical help. And praise God for that. God is so wonderful. And we are so thankful that we have our medical physicians uh, here and nurses and technicians who are here to help you to, to hopefully and prayerfully find the right uh, antidote, medication, whatever it is that you might need to give you the help that you need. And then you're going to feel better. And praise God for that. But as humans, you, like the rest of us, will have the same problem, and that is you will get sick again. There'll be another time where there'll be some illness that may come your way because it's human. It's what we do. It's we, we're humans, and we deal with, we deal with things we, you know, in, a, in a humanly way, and so we will get sick again. But what I want to share with you today is a message that when you receive this message and you accept Jesus and you're baptized into Christ, that when you receive this message and you go to heaven, you will never ever get sick again. I want to talk to you about what's really important, and that is the spiritual stuff, right? And they'll talk to you about the physical stuff. And then we go on into our lesson. And that's what Jesus does. He talks to his audience about what's really important, the spiritual stuff. And I want you to think about this as well in the account. The number of times that God has tried I hate to use the word try because God is always successful. But the number of times that God has presented his message to people, his people, those who are not willing to listen, Gentiles uh, and Jews alike, and they just disregarded everything he had to say. I mean, they, he, had no, he had no audience. Uh, he, they, just, they just didn't want to hear what he had to say. And so he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And Jesus says, you know what happened? You all stoned the prophets I sent, all the messengers that I sent to you to save you, you were not willing to listen to them. And all that I've been trying to do throughout the, you know, the time of humanity from the beginning is to save your soul. But before, before your sins can be forgiven, repentance must be found in your heart. And God says, I came to bring you a message that would help to soften your heart, but the people aren't willing to to listen. But in Luke 15, the sinners and the tax gatherers are at his feet listening with open ears and open hearts. In John 4, the woman at the well was listening. In Luke 10, she was listening to what Jesus had to say. And so prayerfully through the rest of this account that we will listen. What was important 
about this lesson to me, dealing with the younger brother and the older brother. And the reason I put so much emphasis or I spent so much time, should I say, on the two, is I wanted us to be able to look into this account and look deep into our own hearts and ask ourselves honestly and openly, am I guilty of some of these sins? And then, prayerfully, this account brings our hearts to repentance. But to truly understand the grace and mercy and kindness of God, the patience, the forbearance of God, one must first realize or recognize where we are. And if we don't know where we are, we don't really know where we're going. And we definitely don't know where we came from. And so it's important to know, where am I in my spiritual walk with the Lord? So looking at this again from the heaven, um, if you will, the heavenly view or heaven's perspective, this account has God excited in Luke chapter 15. But here's what happens in the account. A child leaves. Another child leaves, right? God suffers, brethren, when a child leaves. God agonizes when a child leaves. Because God knows the end, doesn't he? God knows the end. He knows the beginning. He knows the middle. He knows the end. He knows He knows what he made. He knows he knows the consequence. He knows what he has to do. It's like a father. A father doesn't, you know, go to work and then you come home and as soon as you get in the doors, the children have been disruptive and, and mama says they need a spanking. <laughs> and then, you know, well, your dad. And that's not really what you want to do. A father agonizes when he has to punish his children. A mother does as well. But I'm thinking of the father, God the father in heaven. He agonizes when a child Leaves. I want to get really a good depth of understanding of the agony that this father, and we'll come back to the father, meaning the boy's father, the prodigal's father. We'll come back to him in just a moment. But I want you to get a good understanding, or should I say a reminder, of how God agonizes when we aren't doing what we ought to do, when, when we leave. There are, there are children of God, members of the church in our community, uh, and all over the world, who have, for whatever reason, one or another, have left God. They have left their spiritual relationship. They have walked away from the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, God is agonizing over it. And He wants them to return. As His people, He wants when they return, He wants us to have open arms and open hearts to receive them with much joy and excitement. But let's take a look at how God agonizes for just a moment over a child who leaves. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry. That he made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. How do you think God felt when he had to destroy the world? Think about the souls 
How do you think he felt? How did God feel when he, he watched the, the mentality, the evil and the wickedness of humanity as one human injured another human continuously over and over and over again? And the human being injured cried to God for help and mercy. And then God showed that individual mercy and kindness. And then that individual who now is healthy goes out and injures someone else, right? And it goes on and on, this this repetitive lifestyle of evil and wickedness. It hurt God so badly that God said, I have to stop and start over again with Noah and his family. How do you think God felt when he heard the cries of those as the floodwaters came? And he heard the cries of the people. Think about the agony that God suffered. Then turn, if you will, to Judges chapter 10. And I want to look at verse um, verse 16. Judges chapter 10 and verse 16. There the Bible says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and serve the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. In other words, they were being oppressed and oppressed and oppressed by the Sidonians, I believe it is. The Sidonians are oppressing them, and the Philistines are oppressing them, and the Ammonites are oppressing. And their people, the people of God, are crying, and they're crying, and they're miserable because they've they wanted this. They wanted evil. They wanted it so badly, so desperately. And they got it into their grasp. And they said, this is what we've always wanted. But, you know, evil has a way of catching up with you. And it caught up with them. And then their misery, their misery came. And God watched it to the point to where the Bible says God could bear their misery no longer. In other words, though they were in, they were steeped in sin, God could take it no longer and God rescued them. And, th- and this refrain, right, goes on over and over again in the book of Judges, over and over again, where they, they love evil, they desire evil, they crave evil, they participate in evil, and then when evil catches up with them and it won't turn them loose, they begin to humble themselves and cry to God and God saves them. And God doesn't want to be right. And I, what I mean by that is God doesn't want to sit back and say, I told you so. You know, didn't I tell you? I told you. That's not what God wants. God wants his people to listen. So back to this idea, back to the scene in Luke 15 and verse uh, verse 12 that you have finally, praise God, there's an audience of people who are willing to listen to what Jesus has to say. In verse 12, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Both were willing to take their share. But you notice in the account, and we'll talk more about this when we get to the father, from a different vantage point or perspective. But notice in the account that Instead of the father rebuking the boys, he just divides the property. In, instead of violating 
their free will. Back to this picture from a, a vertical vantage point. Instead of violating human free will that God has given to us, God says, I want you to love me from your heart. From your heart. I want you to love me. I want you to dig down deep into your heart. Step away from your own selfishness, Tony, and love me from your heart. And and instead of violating your free will, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you, I'm going to let you have, because it's available, what you want. But I'm telling you, you don't want this. But if this is what you really want, I am not going to violate your free will. You realize that tears God apart. That, that I would walk away. Because now at this point, the, the, old, the younger brother and the older brother, they're going to walk away from their father. The older brother walks away. Now I'm rich. I, I own it all. The younger brother, I finally got what I want. And I'm leaving home. The older brother stays at home, but he's not really at home. Right? He's just not there. Right? And so, so, so the father is left alone, if you will, while the two boys go their way after having received what they desired and what they wanted only later, I don't know what the account turns out to be with the older son because it doesn't tell us. But the younger son realizing that's not what I wanted. <laughs> I mean, it's what I wanted because of my lust, but this is not the life that I was looking for. <laughs> this is not what I wanted. And then he has to make a decision. Do I go back to God or because of my pride, do I just stay out here and suffer? First Samuel, please, chapter uh, 8. Sadly enough, a lot of people, a lot of us, because of pride, we're just going to stay out there and suffer. And then we become uh, used to this new norm, right? Suffering becomes normal for us. And so you get used to it, and you stay away from God. I think in the account, Maybe what we can gain from it is, number one, a longing for, for God. And number two, a longing for those brothers and sisters that we so desperately miss that's been gone for so long. to Go get them and bring them back. But God is not going to violate our free will. So Israel, remember when God gave them a king. Let's go look at the account in First Samuel chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard of all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So God says, Samuel, they are rejecting me. And listen to what they're saying. God, I mean... I know you gave us Samuel, but he's getting old and his children, they're like us. <laughs> his children are disobedient, not really doing what they ought to do. Um, would you give us a king 
to judge us like all the other nations so we can be just like everybody else. Now keep in mind that Israel has taken over the entire, you know, Canaanite land that they, that they took over except what they left in Judges chapter 1. God has been with them. God has blessed them. God has protected them. God has cared for them. God has comforted them. Uh, God has blessed them in every way. And then all of a sudden, they come up with this great idea. We don't want you anymore, God. We would rather be like everyone else. We would rather do what everyone else does. We would rather think like everyone else thinks. In fact, God, we just quite frankly want to have fun. And we're not really having as much fun as Christians. You ever heard that before? You know, Christians don't have fun. Of course we do. We have wonderful, wonderful days and lots of fun. They reject God, and God helps Samuel to calm himself and says, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. This is what I need you to do, because I'm not going to violate their free will. I want you to listen to what they have to say. And then I want you to prophesy to them. I want you to tell them that things aren't always the way they seem. In other words, yes, there are kings, and as you look at other, you know, dynasties, and you look at other uh, places that, where they live, and there's a king that rules over them. But it's not quite what you think it is. It's not all, you know, apple pie and, and glory. It, it's it's not. It, it, there's, there's some issues with having a king, because there's no king like me. So tell them the procedure of the king. So Samuel prophesies. He begins to tell them what's coming. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards, your olive groves, and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards, and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants, and your best young men and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Now, here's what God was trying to spare himself of. He was trying to spare himself of misery. Because he says, there's going to come a day, and there's going to come a time, as you have your king, and he's taken so much from you, 
that you're going to cry out to me. And because of your sin, I'm not going to listen. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And God has a problem with this. This day hurt God to the core. And you say, well, well, how, how do we know that? Well, number one, all the things God has done for them, and now they reject him. They want no part of him. They don't want them in his life or in their lives. And so they say, Lord, we, we don't want you anymore. I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not sufficient. Uh, you, you're, you're not the king that we are looking for. So now the question is, if we look back up, if we, as we look up into the throne room of heaven, and we look up to God, we ask you, Lord, how did you feel on this day when Israel just outright rejected you and found themselves later in misery and begged and, and pleaded to you, but the very day they asked you, God, about giving them a new king or giving them a king on the earth, how did you feel about that? So if we were to ask God that question, what answer would God give us? Well, let's go find out. Hosea chapter 13 and the verse is 11. There, God has a message for them. And he says, um, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. So when God was speaking to Samuel, he was angry like we would be. You know, when someone, we feel like they've used us. You know, and we go after all I've done for you and you're going to ask me for a dollar back? I just gave you $10,000, you know, whatever, right? We get so upset, right? And we're like, but I've done so, I've given my life for you and you, you go and you go do this. And God says, as he's talking to Samuel, and he calms his nerves, he says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. This is not about you. This, Samuel, is about me. And God's telling us, I was angry with Israel on that day. And then God says, not only was I angry with Israel on that day, when I took that king away, I had wrath in my heart. Looking at life from God's perspective, God wants to tell us something. And it is, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose you. I don't want to walk, you to walk away from me. It will bring misery to my heart. That's why God is so patient, so willing to forgive. I don't want to lose you. When I give you a king... I know what's going to happen. I'm going to lose you. And over all that time, with all those kings, there were only eight good kings. And God's people were just just utterly, literally destroyed. Eventually, you know, Assyria came in 722 B.C. Ten kingdoms are gone, and they just, you don't even hear about them any longer. And then Babylon comes in at 605 uh, B.C. And then, you know, Judah's taken up. Taken south, I mean north rather, uh, up into the Babylonian Empire. They're, they're there for 70 years and they're released and they come back. And I mean, it just didn't go well for them. It did not go well for them. But God made a plan to save humanity. God does not want to lose us. So the prodigal account is, a, is an account from 
looking at it from heaven's perspective, is an account that shows us the very heart of God when one soul walks away. One. And the joy, the excitement in heaven when that one soul comes back, God's excited. Let us, let us strive to be the ones that never leave Him. Let's be that. Let us, let us, if you will, resolve in our hearts. We are going to be the people that stay faithful and true to God, not judging others and not comparing ourselves to others, but we're going to be the people that stay with the Lord until the end and then do all that we can to receive back those who return to the Lord. And if, God forbid, I find myself on the other side of that fence and I'm the one that leaves, let me, Lord, please be the one that figures it out, even if I'm in a pig pen, that figures it out and turns around and comes home to you. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. We have just a few moments left. I want to read Ezekiel chapter 33. uh, And I want to read verse 11 and verse 12. Because again, I want to dig into the heart of God. As we're thinking about this, uh, this, you know, parable that God has given to us. Verse 11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness, whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. In other words, what God is saying is, is you haven't earned this. So maybe you do 10 things right and you're doing wonderful, but the day you sin, you can't stand before God and say, but God, remember the 10 things I did right? You can't do that. That's not how this works. This is what God says. I do not desire the death of a wicked person. I don't want to punish you. I don't want you to have your way. I don't want you to punish yourself for something that you just didn't truly understand. And that's why Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They just didn't understand what was coming their way. They didn't understand their spiritual state. God would rather that we humble ourselves, turn around and come back to him. He does not desire for anyone to die lost. So when we look at this account in Luke 15, when that boy walks away, the father in the account. Maybe he has tears streaming down his face because he knows probably what's going to happen. Maybe not how he's going to spend his money. Maybe not what's going to happen to him in specific, but he knows his boy is going to suffer. And that's what God knows about us. The day we leave him, the day that we walk away, probably, most likely, We're going to suffer. And the sad part about it is, we'll get used to this suffering. We'll get used to the affliction. We'll get used to Satan's persecution. And then we'll start saying things like, you know, but I feel so blessed. And we won't even realize or recognize our own misery. For a person 
without the Lord is full of misery. And that we know to be true. For the Bible tells us in the song, the way of the wicked is hard. And how true it is. Thank you for your time. Tonight we'll come back and we'll continue in this interlude and then we'll get right in to the Father and, and our lesson will be drawing uh, near a, a close. But I, I want us, please, to look at this from heaven's perspective. Look at it from God's in a godly viewpoint or vantage point. Thank you very much. God bless you. And uh, uh, we look forward to seeing you again on Sunday. Thank you.